Today, Courtney and I are joined by Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is an award-winning investigative reporter who covers civil rights and racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. She is the creator of the 1619 Project, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. She has also been awarded the MacArthur Fellowship and many other awards, and she is currently the Knight Chair in Race and Journalism at Howard University. This is a special episode and a personal episode as Nicole joins us to talk about an incident that happened at the school that I went to high school at, Middlesex School in Concord, Massachusetts. In the fall of 2021, she was disinvited to come speak to this predominantly white elite school. And so she joins us today to talk about that disinvitation and why she decided to go public with it and let people know about it over Twitter. And the conversation weaves in and out of fascinating places, including, you know, if we don't talk about things, do they just go away? And she ends the episode with a really important message to the students and community of Middlesex. So enjoy. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, Humanized family? Obviously, it's your boy here. I'm back. I'm here with Emily. And today is monumental. You know, I'm very picky with the podcast. You could call me biased because I think we have the greatest. However, what got me on this podcast journey was listening to a 1619 Project podcast. And it just blew my mind. It gave me the type of education that I never got when I was in school about Black history and things of that nature. So... I feel truly blessed to have Mr. Cole Hannock-Jones here with us on the Humanized Podcast. So let me start off with something about a disclaimer that we usually make, whereas we have gotten permission to have these kind of conversations about race, culture, and things of that nature. And if you haven't gotten that, please do so, so that we can respect this heavy lift of unpacking what we have to unpack to get to freedom. So without further ado, let's get to the work. Ms. Jones. I'm just going to start. I, I, I've been on your Instagram and I see your sneakerhead and all I wear is Jordan. So I was like, yo, she's dope. Talk to me about that. Like, what is your favorite shoe? Like, <laughs> like what, what, I, I want to know because for sneakerhead to sneakerhead, this is a conversation that must be had. Yes. Well, well, thank you. I, I certainly do appreciate sneakers. And, and these days I, I wear sneakers almost everywhere. So my favorite shoes are the Jordan 1s and the mm. Jordan 11. Mm. And, you know, I, I think I, I'm like many folks, Black folks particularly, who grew up in a working class household in a culture that loves sneakers, but my parents could not afford to buy me Jordan. Come on, so man. I had a pair of Air Jordash, which was <laughs> <Air Jordan>. <laughs> <laughs> which, Yes. You know, it didn't make me any friends. So once no. I got, you know, my very first pair of Jordans were the all white Carolina mm-hmm. Jordan 11s. And I, I bought them on my 300 credit limit credit card when I was in college. So I, yeah. I still couldn't afford them. Oh my goodness. So once I got to be an adult and 
and could afford them, I just kind of became obsessed with with all of the things I wish I had had as a child. So, yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, Jordans particularly, but just sneakers, just it, it just speaks to our culture. And yes. yeah, I just, I just, I love, I love everything about it. I love, you know, the way people talk about sneakers. Yeah. Looking at all the different colorways and the different designs. And mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing that a shoe that came out in 1985, my daughter wants and wears. And so we can bond over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Insert my name and you'll still be right there. And I had the same air air dash too. And I had no friends. <laughs> oh yeah. So yes. I remember, bro. We tried to get it any way we could, you know, and we made some bad decisions to get some Jordans back in the day. But uh oh, oh, <laughs> no. but yeah, just the, the culture around it. He, he's the greatest. I feel like I'm the greatest, you know, and so like I, I just it is what it is. And Jordan's yeah. is um, a cultural, a cultural thing. So I appreciate that. Thank I you. mean, I really do feel like it's a cultural thing because I'm, you know, grew up in the Northeast and middle upper class house. And I'm like, why, why shoes? Like, is it the Jordan aspect or what? Like, how did that take form? Do you, you know? Hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a historian of shoe culture. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about other pieces like, of culture. Just, too. just a practitioner. <laughs> But I will say in black communities, shoe game has always been important. Mm-hmm. And I have I have a theory about it. I, I have nothing to base it on except just what mm-hmm. I what I know. But of course, coming out of slavery, a key marker of the poverty of black people was they couldn't afford shoes. Mm-hmm. And you would see, you know, the poorest of the poor couldn't put shoes on their children's feet. Their children would go to school with mm. no shoes. And so I feel like shoes kind of have an outsized importance in Black culture because of that, that you might not have a, a big house, you might be living in an apartment, but when you come outside, you're going to present mm. in a certain way and yeah. you're going to present in an aspirational way and and having, whether they be Stacey Adams, yeah. Gators or Jordans, but having great shoes even if you have no money for other nice things i think mm. it's just really important because of because exactly. of that history that the, the the easiest way to identify our poverty was our our lack of shoes yes. now again a historian might come in and be like nicole that's totally <laughs> made up bullshit i don't know but but i feel like that is part of it and and just our clothing aesthetic in general this need yeah. for mm. black people to always present very well groomed and, and clothes that even if you don't have money they make it appear as if you do mm. yeah yeah. Gosh, can I can I just say like before we're going to come together today and talk about something that happened back in the fall. But I just even just hearing that like my experience of reading the 1619 project as a white woman in the states is I mean it's so profound in the way that I feel like I finally understand my country and it is it it like injects my flat understanding of the country into this 3D experience where I can understand what cultural appropriation means so much better in like a felt bone sense. Mm. And I understand, I'm an anthropologist as well. And so there's a temptation to study culture from the outside. And I've been really focused on black culture the last couple of years. And your book just helped me really feel into, this is on the inside too, it because of the fiber of what I've been raised in. It's just such a monumental piece. Thank you. Thank you. And when I hear that, and I, I hear that quite a bit, I can't imagine a, a greater compliment to the project mm. because it was studying history that made my country make sense to me for right. the first time as well. Because, you know, I, I say this all the time, the history we've been taught is for a country that doesn't exist and right. it never existed. It and doesn't learn. 
right, you learn this history and you're like, but how does our world look like this based right. on this history? And right. when you start to get a more true, more accurate historical foundation, then things do make much more sense. And I actually think that is why the project is considered dangerous by so many people in power, because if you understand our country differently, you make different political choices, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you you're talking to a guy as an MD who reads your book. And as a doctor, we're taught to, you know, you're a doctor, especially as a black man who was the first to be educated. I'm first generation, you know, I come from the Caribbean and I didn't know I was black, you know? So when I yeah. heard someone say, hey, nigga, this and that, I'm like, who are you talking bro, to? You talking to me? Because <laughs> in the house, in the house, like we never knew that because I'm growing up soft fish and Ike and, and I mean, out there, you being macaroni and cheese and kind of like, I didn't know. So growing up in Atlanta, in the, in, the, in the city, it's like, okay, at 14, you know, my pops had to sit me down and talk to me about, yeah, in this country, you're considered a black man. Yes. Mm. But my skin is not black, dad. What does that mean? No, yes. but it's not about, it's like, you're not white, so you're black. And so that was the first introduction towards understanding that. So now fast forward these years and I go to college and then go to med school and become a doctor. And I start to see like, Oh, they give them different shit than they give us. All right, cool. Mm. Is that healthcare or is that is it a business? Because my partners who are in the street, like, this is worse than what they doing. Like, I'm just a legal drug dealer, if you want to put it like that. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, and so like, how can I be a hypocrite in this situation? So let me think about a way where I can transcend this, wear this coat, love medicine because it saved my life but also speak truth to power and so like when i stopped doing that and again fast forward some more i'm still trying to figure it out and your book gave me a like okay now because i hadn't read a lot of books except for medical books up until this one you know and so like to have read that book so many times is a testament to first off a black person second off a black woman like, that's an even a much more powerful thing. And I'm proud to say that, yo, I'm a fan. She may not know, but I've read that <laughs> book. And I'm probably going to read it four or five more times so that when I reference it, I can give you a on page 482 <laughs> on that last sentence on that paragraph. She spoke about this when it came to healthcare or medicine or punishment or all of these other things. So you have blessed the culture and it's supposed to be dangerous. Mm. You, you, It's supposed to be like it's, you, you have a gun that's shooting down a lot of bullshit that's in politics, in government, and all these systems. And so if you want to be safe, you shouldn't have wrote that book. But mm -hmm. because I just met you, I feel like you don't give a damn about that. You want to put something out there, and I promise you, you're a legend right now. And most legends are, aren't, aren't safe people. So I thank you for that. Thank you. And I, I just want to say quickly, Courtney, I, I love that you shared that story of, of your childhood and your father having to have that talk with you because... I have a similar experience with my own child. And if you want to understand how race is, you know, we hear all the time, race is a social construct, but I think people don't really get what hmm. that means when we say that. Yeah. And if you want to understand how blackness has been constructed, how whiteness has been constructed, and that really these are about power dynamics, not about where your ancestry lies. It's not about anything genetic. It's about power. Try to explain how race works to a child. <laughs> because by the time yeah. you're an adult, you've just accepted these rules. You don't really question them. You can recite the rules, 
But when you're trying to explain to a child, which, which I had to do, you know, I'm black, but my mother is white. My father is black. My daughter has the same complexion as I do. So when my daughter was little, she was like, well, we're, we're white, right? Mama, me and you are white. Daddy is black. Grandma is white. And I was like, no, grandma's white but I'm black because my dad was black and you're black because I'm black and your dad is black. And she's like, how? She's like, well, (laughs) if your dad is black and your mom is white, how are you black and not white or what? Right. And it's like, and I'm like, well, because (laughs) because in America, this is the way, right. And it's like, I'm explaining rules to her and boundaries that are illogical. Right. They're Mm -hmm. not logical. right? Right. And then you just have to tell her that's just the way it is. But, you're right. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense because these these are constructions and someone has decided this is who we are in order to justify power in a hierarchy. Mm. And so your mm. dad having to tell you, right, like when you come to America, we look at you and we're like, of course you're black. But blackness was created in opposite, right, to define whiteness, really. Right. Mm-hmm. Absence mm-hmm. of white people, you mm-hmm. don't need blackness. You only need, you only have blackness in response to defining the boundaries of who can be white and who is it. And if you are in an all-Black place, Blackness doesn't exist. You identify as your nationality, right? Right. Or you identify as your ethnicity. But in the United States, we clearly very early show you that you will be placed into this racial construct. And and so Mm -hmm. I think thinking about it in terms of how do you explain race to a child, you realize the illogic of of the definitions that we try to put people into. 100%. Yeah. It's also too like I was telling my parents because when you have someone to not keep practicing medicine who was the first to become a doctor, you're looked upon like, yo, you made it. Mm-hmm. And then so like I said that as a black man, I feel like I got to represent for other black men to come from where I come from and talk like me and move like me. And I feel like I want to be young enough to do it. I want to be able to talk my shit early. I don't want to be 60 years old now I'm in the social justice game. I need to do it right now. Right. Mm. And even explaining it to a Caribbean man in that way, he's like, boy, it's white. It is what it is. Mm. You got to deal with it and keep it, and keep it pushing. Mm. I said that I don't believe in boundaries. I'm always a habitual line step. You know, that's why I love everything that is, is, is different. And so, like, if you tell me, hey, wear church shoes, nah, I'm wearing sneakers. If you tell me doctors look like they have clean cuts, nah, you know what? Let me grow some dreads and, and really mess it. you they're not supposed to talk like that. Okay, I'm going to show you they can. And so everything that this country has done to put a boundaries, to put a box around individuals of color, especially black people, I've taken it as a mission to make sure that I fuck that up. I'm in the mm-hmm. box. I'm boxing my way out to show that there's no window, there's no limits, there's no ceiling. And so your book to me is one of the tools that I can use now as another gun. So with my gun... I need to reload. I'm picking up 1619. Let's go again for round two, you know? And so it is just like, again, I keep coming back to how blessed and like and humbled I feel. And you could ask Emily for me to say this, like I'm I'm audacious. So I I am I'm I'm humbled. Like he is. You, he yeah. is. <laughs> uh, like, I, we don't run across y'all. that word very often, the H word. Yeah. <laughs> I'm humbled. Oh, I I I, I so one of my roles in the podcast is to steer us towards the topic. The topic that we right. Talk about today. Uh, uh, I'm off the rails, Nicole. I'm off the rails. We're gonna rein you in. We're gonna rein you yes, in. Ma'am. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so I graduated from Middlesex in 
1996. And, you know, to paint a picture, it's basically looks like a college with like red bricks. It's in the Northeast, very elite, small, predominantly white prep school. And it's also not lost on me that this is where the Battle of Lexington and Concord occurred in 1775, where the American Revolutionary War started, where, Mm. you know, it was a fight for freedom, right? And then it was pretty clear, as outlined in your book, that that freedom did not include the freedom of the enslaved people. So this school, from my understanding, invited you to come speak at Black History Month in, you know, sometime in the probably spring of 2021. And then October disinvited you. And this caused a, you know, a big upheaval and a big response from a lot of people and ended up including, you know, there are a couple different outcomes of that that we can talk about later. But first, I would just love if you would share your understanding, your experience, like what exactly happened there? Sure. So I am very good friends with a graduate of Middlesex. She's a Black native Brooklynite who got the opportunity to go to Middlesex and, and really believed it, you know, changed her her life. It got it just gave her opportunity she wouldn't have otherwise had. So she asked me, she had a friend who worked at the school and asked would I be willing to to come and, and do a talk at the school. Mm-hmm. Now, as I've said publicly, I don't spend my time giving talks at elite private schools or elite boarding schools. Mm-hmm. It's just not my personal ethos. And in general, I don't have a lot of time. So if I'm going to go speak to K-12 students, they're going to be public school students mm. and, and they're going to be public school students that, you know, reflect who I do my work for, low-income Black Latino students yeah. typically. But I did it as a personal favor. So she, like I said, she's a very dear friend of mine. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it as a personal favor. And then I just passed it on to my assistant to handle all of the arrangements. And, and so frankly, I didn't think anything else about it. I wasn't involved in all of the arrangements. It was just on my calendar. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some months later, my assistant tells me that they had just rescinded the invitation. So I asked her to forward me the email that she received that. And the woman, the black woman who had made the invitation was very upset, embarrassed, you know, and had fought it, but, but had not been successful. And Mm -hmm. I made the decision. This was after the very public tenure fight that I had Mm -hmm. with the university of North Carolina, similar motivations, Clearly, Middlesex, it was similar motivations. It was over my my work on the 1619 Project and kind of symbol I had become amongst more conservative folks. And so I just decided I, I, I was going to publicly say what happened, that I was mm. just invited to come speak at a high school, basically. Yeah. Right? And then, of course, the rest is history after I made that announcement. But for me, it was just important because as someone who has written about and you know spent most of my career writing about school segregation, school inequality, and folks have long tried to act as if the issue is just racist white people in the South. Uh-huh. And that's why I did the, you know, the New York Times magazine cover on school segregation in New York City, because I really wanted to push back and be like, this is, you know, Malcolm X said the South is everything south of the Canadian border. And I tend <laughs> to agree with that. Like this isn't, there's no regional barrier boundary to that type of racism or discomfort with truth telling. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to make that public. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was important that if someone 
you know, and then the reason was they didn't want to bring the noise. Right. And I I just had no idea what that meant. I could certainly draw my own conclusions, Mm -hmm. but to overrule what students wanted. I mean, I was supposed to be coming for Juneteenth, for God's sake. right? (laughs) Like, Like, you know, it's like to overrule what students wanted and all of these months because of concerns really of, of wealthy alum was something I just wasn't going to be quiet about. Right. Right. I And I, I think it's definitely been important in our community. I speak as an alumni. I wasn't there during the process, but it sparked, a, I think, a lot of self-reflection and a lot of movement. And it did ironically create the noise, <laughs> you know, a really yes. important noise, yes. Yes. <laughs> which like says to me, like, we cannot escape this. We can't just keep closing doors and turning away from it. Ms. Jones, you know what the noise is. <laughs> you know I what mean, the damn noise was. I, I do and I and I don't. I, okay. I think the thing that I never understood, I mean, I, I knew by then I was a controversial figure mm-hmm. to some folks and that my work was controversial. But when they said noise, I, it wasn't clear to me whether it was like they believed like it would draw like negative attention from the outside or whether it was mm. going to cause problems for people who give to the school. I, I didn't know. And it was just a, such a weird way of putting it because yeah. I was under the mistaken belief that the role of the education is to expose students to different perspectives, different viewpoints, to challenge their, yes. their thinking. I mean, that's what I thought. <laughs> so even if I am controversial, to me, that seems like a reason to keep the invitation. Absolutely. Because it allows, you know, it, it allows dialogue and people to talk about whether they agree or disagree with the work that I'm doing. And to me, that that is the calling of, of an education. It, it is to 100%. expand our worldview and challenge us. So, so yeah, I'm not naive. Like, I, I knew what it meant, but I didn't know specifically, like, who. Generally. Yeah. And, and I think that they tried to, in some ways, have it both ways, because then they tried to act like, oh, it would bring in, if I remember the wording somehow, like, outside agitators, the famous, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. outside agitators like it's mm-hmm. not our community we're worried about but it's those other people. other people yeah so uh-huh. I, I felt like they were they were trying to have it both ways like not wanting me to come but not wanting to take 100 credit or responsibility yeah. for not wanting me yeah. to come but acting like they were somehow acting out of concern yeah mm-hmm. i agree you know i can't help but think about slavery and how it was illegal to read <laughs> it was because when you're truly well read you're so close to freedom, you can taste it. Because yes. now you can see something that doesn't exist. And yes. that's true. You can create. And a true education, like you alluded to before, is a perspective. It's a, pers- it's a different perspective. Like, I don't have to agree. But when I'm truly free, I can see all perspectives. However, when you're enslaved, you can't see that. And see, this is why, like, it's you're so dangerous because not only can you have a conversation with a civil activist, a social justice warrior, you can also have a conversation with a Ku Klux Klan member and see their perspective because it's always a reason why I hate you so much, Black woman. You don't know what's in the Ku Klux Klan member's history as to why he feels this right. way, you know? And so he or she. And so, like, I think the noise was it's a, a, a collective of, you know what? I don't want to really show truth and and people speak on both sides of freedom as if it's like this comfortable thing Mm -hmm. with how uncomfortable slavery was, how much of an underpinning it was in this country. It has to be ugly as fuck so that we can get to freedom. That's there's no other way around the conversation of slavery. So so one. People who attempt to censor are, are attempting to control. We know that, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. uh, it's the idea that you have to keep 
information control. You have to keep people's perspective and understanding very small, uh, very yes. parochial. And that is how you control people. And, yeah. you know, your your analogy to slavery is true. The reason black people are the only people in the history of our country for whom it was illegal to learn to read and write is if you're in Georgia, you don't know there's an abolitionist movement. You don't know that there are people actually opposed to slavery. You are in a world where slavery is acceptable, yes. undergirded by law and power in every way. You are you're not on some border state. You don't know that freedom exists in this hmm. country. You don't know there are parts of the country that you can be free and there are folks fighting on your behalf. Yeah. Once you have that knowledge, right, your understanding of your condition and whether or not you have to remain in it changes completely. So that restriction of knowledge, I mean, we're seeing this in these anti-history laws being passed all over the country. Laws saying, you know, somehow the belief that if if you talk about gay people or trans people to children, it will turn them gay or trans, right? right? It's all about trying to restrict knowledge to control our children. And while making the opposite argument that they are saving children from being indoctrinated, but really you're saving children from being liberated, from having minds that question that are exposed to all of these different ideas. Yeah. And my main problem always was, again, you can love me, hate me, love the 1619 Project, hate the 1619 Project, disagree with it, agree with it. But if you feel like you have a stronger argument, then make it. <laughs> but instead, you want to shut the conversation down. Right. You don't want the conversation to happen, which tells me you don't actually think you can make the stronger argument. You don't actually believe the facts are on your side. You believe that you have to restrict people from learning the argument because you can't refute it. Mm -hmm. The strength to me is in openness. If you truly believe you are right, you have the, the history on your side, the arguments on your side, you will simply make them and I'll be exposed, right? Yeah. Everyone will see that what I'm saying isn't true. Instead, mm -hmm. when you seek to silence and shut down, that, that speaks like you actually don't have the conviction of believing in your own argument. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm excited. I, 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 yo. <laughs> Whew. Greatness, Whew. greatness cannot see when you're great, when you're truly great, you're going to be attacked. However, greatness can't be exposed. That's why we wear Jordans. Like they always, they still coming for Jordan. Oh, he's the next Jordan. He's the next. No, you're not, bro. You're not. Greatness, you're great. So they will come for you. However, there's no argument. So everything is like, hey, I don't have to argue. She's just trying to indoctrinate. You know, the ironic thing is, by not allowing individuals to have their own perspective or see other perspectives, you're actually indoctrinating them to mediocrity. You're of making course. it so that, yes. that that's right. it. So right. it, directly, you are doing what you're fighting against. That's right. So it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's dehumanizing the white potential as well of like, yeah. how can we Absolutely. access our heart? How can we have a yes. complete history so that we can make different decisions Yes, and be like, you know, this whole, like, I do a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion work and dealing with the, the white guilt. And, like, I, I did hear from one student, you know, there were some students that were concerned that she was going to come and make the white people feel guilty. And how, you know, you say explicitly in your book, like, I don't think anyone alive right now is personally accountable for slavery. And <laughs> yet we have to find our position in this work. And how can we do that if we're not actually, like, have our eyes open and looking at the landscape? Yes. And I think we have to be able to distinguish and help young people distinguish between feeling sadness, remorse, or yeah. as I said, shame and feeling guilt. So mm. I, I, I talked about this on, on Twitter and of course the right wing went with it. But, you know, when I went to uh, Hiroshima mm -hmm. and 
visited the museum to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I felt an intense shame as an American Mm. to Mm. bear witness to what my government had done in our name. I clearly had nothing to do with it, right? And and Black folks who were being violently suppressed in this country certainly had nothing and were opposed to the bombing. Many of them had nothing to do with it, but that was that was irrelevant. As an American, I can feel shame for something that I didn't personally do because I'm a human being. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we should protect children from feeling those emotions. That is how you have empathy, mm-hmm. right? That is how, to me, as you say with your podcast, right, we become more human when we can look at something terrible and feel badly about it. Exactly. We have to protect children from feeling these. We should all feel deeply troubled by slavery. We should Mm -hmm. be hurt by it. We should be ashamed as a nation. And that's different than saying you individual white child should feel guilty for what your ancestors did. Absolutely. That's unfair. And I I don't know anyone who's arguing that. But what I also say in the book is you do bear responsibility for what you do now or what you don't do now. Yes. And that is something that we all have to own. But I'm a strong believer in the power of shame, of collective shame, of collective remorse. Because that is how we determine not to make those same mistakes again. That is how we determine that we will be better and not do the things of the past. A hundred percent. Two things that just came up for me while you were speaking, Ms. Jones. I think it's a lack of protection and willful neglect when you don't allow knowledge to be disseminated. I definitely think that. Because if you don't know how to walk because you're being held until you're six, that's neglectful. And you think you're loving your kid, mm. but you didn't allow your kid to walk, that's neglect. So now their their legs don't work, not because it's enabled, but the atrophy has happened so much, they don't have the muscles to walk. And so that's willful neglect. You, there's no protection mm. there. So we don't have these conversations with our children, the generation that has to come behind us. Like that's willful neglect and a higher probability to keep the system going. However, the system is doing what it's supposed to do, though. Like, when I talk about white supremacy, I say, white man, you don't have enough power. You're not a system. However, the system was created to benefit someone that looked like you and to not benefit someone that looks like me. So I'm not coming for you. I'm coming for the system. So let us collaborate together so that we can dismantle this system because I need your help. So this podcast and the work that we do is not to dehumanize, to make feel bad, is to critically think about something that we love, which is humanity, which is this country, which is all of the systems that this country is built upon so that we all can rise and not just some that look a certain way. Mm-hmm. That's it. That, that, that's what I, I just, I, it just came up for me and I had to speak that into the, into the room. Mm-hmm. We talked a couple minutes ago about the controversy surrounding your work. And I'm just curious, like, would you be willing to speak to there's got to be kind of a, a psychic toll on you as a person who has become this avatar for CRT, which has mythically and become <laughs> this rallying point for the right. And I'm just curious, you know, if if these type of events, like the 10-year event in the Middlesex, that was happening 20 years ago to you, would you be able to respond in the same way or 30 years ago? And like how you... I mean, first of all, I'm assuming that there's like a psychic toll, but maybe there's not. I'm just curious about your path in regards to those things. 
Well, just to be clear, 30 years ago, I was 16. So I'm not that well, old. But still, you know, like these students <laughs> um, were 16 too. So they were, you know, they're dealing. Uh, right, right. <laughs> right. So, you know, I don't know how to answer that. It, it's hard in general, just because of the way my mind works to a- try to answer hypotheticals. And, mm. you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, none of the things that are happening to me would have happened because I didn't have the platform that I have now. I didn't have the reach that I have now. I've been writing about racial inequality my entire career in journalism. Yeah. You know, I I talked about how my work before the 1619 Project was going much more directly. I was writing about what folks are doing right now, right? All the ways that folks are segregating Black children, doing things to cause Black people to live in segregated neighborhoods. Like I was writing about the actions that many white Americans as individuals as well as systems we're doing against Black folks and never received this type of, of response and villainization, so which I think speaks to, one, it does speak to you know where I am in my career, but it also speaks to how history exists. I mean the history not as in this is what happened on this day and this is who did it, but history in terms of really memory, our kind mm-hmm. of collective understanding of mm-hmm. who we are and what in our collective and really managed and manipulated understanding of the past that exists to justify power mm-hmm. and you know so that is what is so dangerous about this work is work that tells us a different story that tries to decenter white americans as you know the the only victors in the story as the only heroes in the story and when i think about those white students who are afraid my coming would make them feel guilty it's because they've never been confronted with a history that doesn't place them at the center mm. that does not place them as always the good guys it's always mm-hmm. the heroes and there is a deep fear of being replaced i mean mm-hmm. literally and figuratively right mm-hmm. so to me how i would have responded I don't, I don't know, because I just yeah. was in a very different place in my career and drew a very different type of attention. But is there a psychic toll? Of course. Mm-hmm. I'm a human being. I, I, <laughs> I'm not superhuman. I, I feel every emotion anyone else has. And mm-hmm. as much as you can try to say the attacks don't matter, these people don't matter, it's impossible for it not to get to you when you have the types of emails I get, the threats, Mm -hmm. the efforts, even by some academics who consider themselves to be progressives, to not just critique the work, which is fine, but to discredit the work. Yes, it it absolutely has an impact. But and I and I would say I, I've responded to it sometimes better than others. I'm also an Aries, so you know, I'll, I'll fight anybody. I don't care if you have the president of the United States or you have two hundred followers. <laughs> I will defend my honor. That's that's just how I am personality wise. Yeah. And also just because of, of how I, you know, I, I, I came up in an extremely working class family mm. in a working class community. We didn't put on airs. We don't, I don't play those games. Like I, I'm not, I'm not ever going to be coy. I don't, I, I don't pretend to be anything other than what it is. So I say exactly what I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just not mm. going to play that game. But it gets you in trouble, right? Like I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a business and with a platform where saying exactly what you think allows people to create sound bites on Fox News that then sends people into your inbox again. But I take, you know, I, I call myself Ida Bay Wells in homage to Ida B. Wells, of course, and having studied history and particularly Black women activists, Black women journalists, it's also all very expected and. 
I do this with the protection of the New York Times. I do this with, you know, tremendous resources. Ida B. Wells had none of that. Mm. And Ida B. Wells was getting like literal threats. So Mm -hmm. while Mm -hmm. it bothers me, I'm like, uh, we're built for this. Mm. And I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. I knew I knew the attacks would come with this project. But this is the work that that had to be done and the work that I'm called to do. And the one thing about all of these folks, you know, this is like when Middlesex disinvited me, when the University of North Carolina did what they did, they think that these are the things that will break you. Mm. You can't break me because (laughs) you you just you you don't have the ability. Like, I I don't need to talk at Middlesex. I didn't need to be at the University of North Carolina. I don't define myself by these elite institutions. If anything, I've gone into them just to prove that I can succeed in their game at the highest level. And Mm. then I've proven that. And as Mm -hmm. I said, when I rejected (sighs) the University of North Carolina, I have nothing left to prove to y'all. And when you don't have that motivation, they don't know what to do with you. And Mm. they, they, they have not been able to succeed in breaking me because what motivates them is not what motivates me. Right. Right. Church. Church. <laughs> like we like we say to her, top yo shit. Yes. Yes. I I'm curious. You were saying that it you know you don't usually speak at these elite you know prep school situations, and you prefer to speak in public schools. And when you're speaking, well, first of all, what were you gonna speak on? Do you know what you were gonna speak on? At Middlesex? A 1619 project. I mean, okay. yeah. I, and again, trust me, I, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's amazing, like, how how big of a deal my visit was. Because to me, I was like, you know, I, I didn't know the details. I you haven't even drafted it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just your presence. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Because that was one question a student had asked me to relay was, what was she going to speak on? Yeah. It's your preferred audience just places where your word will be received, where people are more open to integrating it? Or like, what dictates where you prefer to kind of place your energy? So no, I I don't have a preferred audience in that way. But I do have to be selective on where I spend my time. So I speak in all types of different uh, venues. And you know, my audience does tend to be self-selecting, right? Like people typically come to see me because they agree with what I'm talking about or support what I'm talking about. But I, I I speak all over the country. I speak at all types of different colleges, different types of organizations, public events. Mm-hmm. I always tell the organizers, don't feel like you have to weed out the spicy questions or the critical questions. I'm not afraid to answer them. Mm-hmm. You know, I went on Chris Wallace on purpose because if I respect you as uh, a person, I don't care if your political views match mine or not. And in fact, I, I enjoy being challenged. I'm, I'm an heiress. Like I, I, I can take it. But when it comes to, and, and, and I really am much more specific about K-12, mm. I just think about with my limited amount of time, right. where do I want, if if I'm talking to high school students or young kids, where do I want to spend my time? Mm-hmm. And it's just not in a place where those kids already get high caliber speakers all the time. They have right. access to, you know, an amazing alumnus network. Like they just mm-hmm. have a mm-hmm. lot. Someone like me coming there is like, you know, a notch on the belt maybe, but if I go to a poor black high school in Brooklyn, they never had a speaker like me come there. And I can touch them by saying, I come from where you come from. I understand, Mm. like they need to see a black woman like me who has been successful 
adult, much more than kids at Middlesex, even the black kids who are there, because the black kids who are there are already seeing another world for themselves. Mm. I need to help these kids see another world for themselves. So, mm. you know, when I was when I announced that I was going to Howard instead of the University of North Carolina, and a lot of folks were like, well, don't you feel like the white students at Carolina need you? I don't. <laughs> you know, it's not that I it's not that I couldn't offer them something. Of course I could. But when I'm thinking like who needs me the most? Who who has the least access to what I can offer? It wasn't going to be those kids at the flagship university at a flagship journalism school at the University of North Carolina. So, I just try to be very specific and particular about who I'm giving access to me particularly when it comes to young people, where I feel I can do the greatest good for the kids who have the greatest need. Mm. Love that. Love I mean, that. I, I, wow. Again, what's coming up for me now is representation and access. You know, I, you represent so much for women of color that like it's, it's because it's one thing to be black, nothing to be a black man. Then it's nothing to be a young black woman. You know, like that's that that it's a I appreciate you right put there. young on, on there. Uh, of course, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm black, sis. Come on now. I I play I play with you. <laughs> no, I crazy, bro. I did a culture. I'll claim it for today. It's all relative. Right? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, so like I really appreciate the energy. I really appreciate the focus and the intentionality behind where you spend your time because people feel as though the time is forever. However, time is money, you know, and time is the most valuable. That's the only, so we can get money, we can get everything else. But once you waste time, like somebody just passed from the time that you did this, there was a life that could have been saved. Mm -hmm. There's someone that you could have touched as, like you said, a person with the platform, with the access, with the resources that you have. It is pivotal that you you intentionally place it where it can be another bullet for another Nicole Hennig Jones is coming up behind you to write the 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 sixteen nineteen project after you that's gonna continue to cause so much news and to continue to make some individuals fear the truth, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, to, to, so thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. Can we talk for a second about hope? I believe you are speaking at an event today and I saw the, the you know, cause I've been stalking you for a while now. So the slogan of hope is action. And when I was sitting with that, you know, I feel like my current orientation is a little bit more like action is hope action creates that the trajectory towards hope. Can you tell me about your perspective on hope? And and I've heard you say also, you're not feeling very hopeful in the current climate. Yeah. So I, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm in general, not even the current climate. I'm just, I don't engage in hope a lot. It's not my kind of my bearing. I think that some people would call me pessimistic. I just think I'm a realist and I don't have a lot of hope mm. that this country will after 400 years ever treat black folks and other marginalized folks as it should or or live up to, you know, the kind of majestic ideals of its founding. I just don't see evidence in our mm -hmm. society. And yet every time I give a talk almost, I always get that question, right? Mm -hmm. What makes you hopeful? How do you mm -hmm. sustain hope? And it presumes that I have it in the first place, <laughs> right. which I don't. And I used to just dismiss the question mm -hmm. because I, I, I have always been like, you know, we're obsessed with hope because if we just have hope that things will get better, 
we're not actually required to do anything to make it get better. And I realized that you can't keep talking to people about these deeply entrenched societal issues and then leave them feeling hopeless because we do have power. We, mm-hmm. we can change things if we choose to. And, you know, I, I think about someone like a Fannie Lou Hamer or Diana Nash or John Lewis, who were, you know, Fred Gray, born into apartheid mm-hmm. and have no reason to ever believe they could bring the end to legal discrimination, segregation in this country. There was nothing about American history that would make them think that. And yet they they fought to make it happen and they did it. So that's when I started saying, OK, I'm going to answer the whole question in a different way. And what I'll say is that it's not enough to have hope. You have to act on that. Yeah. And that hope is, to me, hope without action is useless. Mm. John Lewis didn't sit and hope things would change. He, he went out in the streets and made them change. Mm. And if we can funnel our hope into action to bring about the future that we want, then I'm all for that. But if we just treat hope as a bomb, like, you know, we're just praying. Thoughts just, and prayers. Or whatever right. Think thing. one day, maybe things will get better or we mm-hmm. assume things will get better. I find that to be useless. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm just trying to to wed those two things together to say, yes, we should all hope for a better future. But we either have to take action to make it so or you could keep your hope. Yeah. By default, mm-hmm. we're not going to go in the right direction. We have to charge ahead. Yes. I mean, this is what Ibram X. Kendi in in his essay in the 1619 book, the second to the last essay argues is we will make progress one way or another, but we like to think the progress will always be positive progress, moving forward progress, racial progress. But Mm -hmm. he argues, of course, that you can have racial progress or you can have racist progress. And Mm -hmm. we're clearly in a moment right now of racist progress. So progress is inevitable, but good progress, forward progress is not. Yes. I so we are we're almost out of time with you here. <laughs> I just wanted to take a quick moment and pass along some messages from the black students that I spoke with at Middlesex because I know that the weight of what happened is in- incredibly intense on the entire Middlesex community. Just want to know let you know how it played out. So as soon as the students were told about this, they started hanging your tweets around the school. Mm-hmm. Conversations started going and then they started to have some educational things going and they organized a protest. They knew they had to do the education before the protest. And they really focused their efforts around claim our voice. That was what they were. It wasn't a protest. It was a walkout. So they were saying claim our voice. And they set up an entire 1619 podcast listening project on their own. And the change that they've been able to create, and this was really from the students and faculty, is they they eventually found out the head of school basically bent to the president of the board. It was really the two of them, the president of the board. Uh, The head of school was under a performance review at the time. Interesting, you know, kind of whiteness, keeping whiteness in check there. They have since stepped down, both of them. And the students, and this is what I love, the students have now gained a seat at the board because they were like, no more making decisions for us without us there. Hmm. So they now have two representatives with the board and that's going to be an ongoing process. I just thought that was such a beautiful outcome that they have amplified their voice and yes and they just want to let you know that what that what happened wasn't speaking for them and so i just wanted to pass that along to you so i i'm so appreciative of that and i followed the stories and i was Mm. just so honored and proud of the way the students fought back and and refused to take it silently and i I want to be clear to the black students and other uh, marginalized students at middlesex that 
when I'm saying I choose where to spend my time, it is not dismissive of the mm. struggles that they face at these institutions. I spent my whole life in elite white institutions. I was bused to white schools starting in the second grade. I, I went to the University of Notre Dame where I was absolutely traumatized and went back for the first time in 20 years <laughs> a few months ago, you know, the University of North Carolina. I know what that's like. And we absolutely deserve to be in any of the spaces that we are in. And we have the right to be there and not be made to feel small or like we're lucky or like we're a charity case. And so I, I don't want them to take what I'm saying as saying somehow they are not as important or I'm not concerned about their well-being because I absolutely am. For me, it really is just where do I think my energy is best placed. Yeah. But I was just so proud of, of how they handled it and them asserting their right to be there and asserting their right to be listened to and the right to be heard. And I'm so supportive of that and see myself in, in, in what they did. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Can't say thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I, before, real quick for the Black community, Young, beautiful black sister, I appreciate the work you do, and please keep pushing. We need you out here for real. Thank you so know much. How we can ever support you, please. Thank you, thank you. I, I so enjoyed the conversation with you both. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. All right. Have a great day. Bye bye. bye, -bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.